star T minus 10 seconds. The cultists present. Nine, eight, cinema of cruelty. Three, five by five. One. We have ignition. Yes. Hello, and welcome to Five by Five. And today on Five by Five, Linda and I break down our top five Dark Knight of the Soul movies. The Dark Knight of the Soul, because that is another phrase that I brought up a lot throughout our first year of going through films, because I love a great Dark Knight of the Soul film, which is not a technical subgenre classification of anything. So... I suppose we should start here by me explaining what the fuck a Dark Knight of the Soul film is. Hey, London, what the fuck is a Dark Knight of the Soul film? I'm so glad you asked. It's the best kind of film. So there are some films that take place over a condensed time period. And the Dark Knight of the Soul for me are those films that take place over the course of a single night, or at least primarily over the course of one single night in which a group of people must endure things, come together, learn a bit about themselves in some capacity, and then go forth to see again the dawn. And why I call this a Dark Knight of the Soul film is mostly, I think I started using this term when applying it to 90s cinema in particular, just because as we've mentioned before, the 90s was a really great time for independent filmmaking. And Out of that independent film set, there were a lot of people that started to try to do these lower budget films. And not only were they doing them with less effects and less lighting and all the things that kind of make a movie cheaper, they also had a tendency to try to create these micro narratives, which all took place over the course of like 24 hours or a single night. We saw it in Dawn's Plum in particular, Mm -hmm. a little bit in Eyes Wide Shut, even though those were like two Dark Knights of the Souls. (laughs) But I brought up the term Dark Knight of the Soul a lot in that. And so those are both 90s films, of course. And yeah, there's just something really fun about the inconsequential feeling of 90s Dark Knight of the Soul movies, because usually since that's the entire narrative of the movie, it's like, oh, we've had something so profound happen. It's like, did you though? Or did you just, you know, have dinner at a diner? Or did you just witness some sort of occult sex party and now you're back to where you began? So Dark Knight of the Soul, that initially has a much more profound meaning, which I will get into here. But I think it's hilarious just for myself to apply them to films in which it seems to want to say something really profound, but it's kind of just an inconsequential night with a little bit of growth. And so what we're going to talk about today are the top five films of that genre. And now you're supposed to ask me where the deep dark night of the soul comes from. I'm not done talking. I'm never done talking. You never really are. London, where does the deep, dark night of the soul come from? there we go. Is this from 90s films? Look at that curiosity, unprompted. (laughs) So, dark night of the soul is actually a term that comes from a 16th century Spanish poem from Spanish mystic and poet Saint John of the Cross. And this is a poem that he did not himself title. It just starts out with this phrase of the dark night or the noche obscura. 
or Noche Oscura. I don't think there's a B in the Spanish one. So is that one Batman movie when it's exported overseas called that? The Dark Knight? I don't know. I had to look that up. I'm Noche assuming maybe Oscura. Yeah, I don't know. So... Yeah, this this dude, he writes this poem. He doesn't title it. He will go on to write two book-length commentaries on his own poem, which is kind of hilarious and badass. He'll title those commentaries, but he doesn't title this poem. But to everybody else, it's known as Dark Night of the Soul. And it starts out in an obscure night, fevered with lover's anxiety. Oh, hapless, happy plight, I went, none seeing me, forth from my house, where all things quiet be. So it starts out, and it is night, <laughs> and he's going to go on a journey, except for as this journey unfolds, it's actually a very spiritual divine poem in which the dark night of the soul is not actually only one night. It's a whole metaphorical process, I suppose, of the more Christian or Roman Catholic. I think it's really just the Catholics that really kind of embrace this dark night of the soul concept now, but I'm I'm not really a specialist on different sects of Christianity, so I don't know. But it's a Christian something. That sounds Catholic. Where, yeah, the soul must go through some things to, like, reunite with the divine or with God or, you know, like, whatever. Hence why it's great to then apply it to, like, really inconsequential 90s films. There was a whole, like, slew of stuff that started to use this Dark Knight of the Soul afterwards. Douglas Adams will write a book parody specifically about this poem and the concept of it called The Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul that came out (laughs) in the 80s. Depeche Mode will make a reference to the Dark Knight of the Soul in their seminal song, I Feel Loved, where it starts out, it's the Dark Knight of the Soul. And then our buddy David Lynch. Oh, David really? Lynch worked on a project with Sparkle Horse and Danger Mouse to do a audiovisual project that is entitled Danger Mouse and Sparkle Horse Present Dark Knight of the Soul. There are a lot of other pop cultural references that are going to bring up Dark Knight of the Soul, but those are the three that are most important to me. So wow. I bring those up now. I'm just shocked I've never heard of that David Lynch project before. Yeah. He, he does a lot of weird stuff sometimes in his own free time. But so we have all been touched by the dark night of the soul, including David Lynch. All right. I kind of think of it almost as like a Dante's Divine Comedy to me is the OG dark night of the soul. Because yeah, yeah. that came out about 100 years before this dark night of the soul poem. Mm-hmm. And you have the whole concept of the little dude going through all of his little journey and at the end they come forth to see again the stars not the dawn in the divine comedy they Mm. come forth to see again the stars which is also a really great phrase and one i kind of bastardize when i keep saying to come forth to see again the dawn so that's where that expression kind of comes from and that's that's my life (laughs) so we are going to do the top five films that we are defining as movies that take place over the course of one single night or nearabouts in which the entire plot is based off of some transformation or weak transformation that's going to come about. Or a stunning lack of transformation in regards to some of mine, and yet transforms all the same, really. Yeah, like we have learned nothing is maybe also what happens during the dawn, but I there's something about the just inconsequentialness of the Dark Knight of the Soul movies that I just love. So <laughs> we're gonna top five them here, and as usual, Benji and I have not compared our lists ahead of time. So, so yeah, if there's crossover, it is purely coincidental. I think I'm gonna have some that will not be on your list, because there are some on mine that are movies we've never discussed. Well, first of all, none of the movies I have on my list are movies that we have discussed in full-length episodes. 
And there are movies on my list that we have just never discussed as friends ever in the past decade that we have known each other. Yes, I'm intrigued. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we have a listener submitted Dark Knight of the Soul movie, and we're not going to open it until the very end to see if we covered it. Yeah, because he was like, well, there's clearly only one answer. And I'm like, all right, write it down. Fold it up. We'll open it. Mm-hmm. See what it is. That's... So I, I have no idea what's in this paper either. It's, it's all suspenseful. Can you feel the suspense? There's just so much suspense. Yeah. What's your honorable mention slash okay. fifth? All right. Well, my honorable mentions are just kind of movies that are contained within a single time period. And there is some transformation, but they're not really night movies. Movies like Groundhog Day. And what is Groundhog's Day about for those who don't know? If there is anyone who doesn't know. Groundhog Day, not Groundhog's Day like so many people seem to think, is a 1993 high-concept comedy starring Bill Murray about an asshole weatherman who is caught in a time loop on the titular Groundhog Day, reliving the same day over and over again in a small town he despises. Will experiencing this one day on repeat for eternity have a fundamental change in the very nature of his soul? Maybe. My other one was Run, Lola, Run. Okay, you might as well go ahead and explain that one too, since I know you want to. Run Lola Run, or Lola Rint in the original German, which means Lola Runs, is a 1998 German film where a woman with the greatest hair in the world, Lola, only has 20 minutes to get 100,000 Deutschmarks to her boyfriend before he is killed by gangsters. How does a feature film work within a 20-minute time frame? By repeating those 20 minutes. Does Lola learn anything from this repeat of time? Maybe. The dark 20 minutes of the soul. Yeah. What are your honorable mentions? Uh... All right, so my honorable mention for Dark Knight of the Soul goes out to a movie we have talked about, Clue, from 1985. That is a night. It is a <laughs> single night, but and it's far superior in some ways to some of the ones that actually made it onto my top five, but I'm just giving it an honorable mention because we've talked a lot about Clue. My other honorable mention goes out to, similarly, since it wasn't a dark night, it was a dark day of the soul, goes to a 2004 film called Cellular. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Which we just talked about earlier today. (laughs) So Cellular is an early Chris Evans film uh, with Kim Basinger. And Kim Basinger, she plays a scientist, like a high school teacher of science who ends up getting kidnapped, I think by Jason Statham, maybe. A lot of people are in Cellular. We've got William H. Macy is in there as well. Another action and icon, Jessica sure. Jessica Biel. But yeah, I think it's Jason Statham that kidnaps Kim Basinger, and she ends up in an attic with this smashed up phone that she's able to reassemble because she knows science, and it's like hardwired to the wall. And she starts tapping together those wires because the dial pad's been smashed, so she can't call a specific number. She just has to keep, you know, putting those little, like, wires together, calling whoever she can, and eventually... One of those numbers is a real number that picks up, and that number belongs to Chris Evans' cell phone, and he has to go on a harrowing day across Los Angeles with his cell phone that he can't hang up on because there's no way for her to call him back. And so the only way, yeah, and you're running into all these early 2000s problems with cell phones, like the reception not having drops. Yeah, like the reception dropping in and out or like the charge yeah, yeah like kind of ending and so it's harrowing stuff it's actually way more fun than i ever anticipated that movie being. i just want to see fun, crazy watch. what is jason statham's motivation like oh this science teacher i'm gonna put up my attic i'm gonna stow away with all those stolen cell phones i have do you know what I mean? 
Yeah, I can't remember why. He had a reason. I can't remember if maybe, like, he kidnapped the wrong person or I don't know. There's reasons. You're going to have to watch it to find out. What's your actual number five? My actual number five is a bright, dark night of the soul. The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yes. The Rocky Horror Picture Show is a 1975 science fiction comedy musical. It's your typical story of boy proposes to girl, girl says yes, boy and girl go to visit a professor, and along the way become ensnared by a sex cultist who may or may not be aliens. And people are singing all the time. Will these wild times change the very souls of our boy and girl? The answer is, unequivocally, without a doubt, maybe. It is all in one night, and by God, there is some transformative action in that movie, the likes of which audiences in 1975 had not quite seen yet. In fact, they didn't really see it because, you know, one, the one thing that you know about the Rocky Horror Picture Show is that it flopped spectacularly at the box office and really did not get its feet on until midnight showings became a more consistent thing and has remained in theaters ever since then and is beautiful. But... Like I said, it's the bright dark night of the soul. There is some dark shit happening in Rocky Horror Picture Show. Sexual assault of many varieties is among one of them. Cannibalism, murder. Cannibalism, murder. Yes, of course. Meatloaf, acting. It's it's terrifying. <laughs> Intergalactic space crimes. I mean, this is some serious shit. Three-pronged dildos at the very end there. Yeah. I mean, they're not meant to be three-pronged dildos, but if you go to see that at a screening, they're called three-pronged dildos by the audience. It's just what you do. Absolutely. But Yes, that is, I think, it's the best way to start my list of the Dark Knight of the Soul, because that is the least dark. Yeah, no, they don't all have to be dark. I absolutely love Rocky Horror Picture Show. It did not end up on my list just because yeah, I tried to find specifically the ones where there's like a lot of movement for some reason, because hmm. I was like, uh, confining it to a house. But yeah, they journey to that house, and it all takes place over the course of one night, Sexual awakenings are had. Oh boy. Nonconformist awakenings are had. It's a really great. Non con nonconformist sexual awakenings are had. Uh, <laughs> I mean Dub- yeah. dubious consent. Dubious consent. <laughs> For some reason it reminds me of what should and should not be on the list. Orgy of the Dead. Oh yeah. From Ed Wood, because it has a similar premise where you're like Not on my list. There's a pair and their car breaks down and they wander into a graveyard and it's just a parade of undead things and they kind of go to dinner it's really not interesting but the title alone orgy of (laughs) orgy of the dead it bears you know mentioning it should be pointed out that orgy of the dead was written by ed wood but it was not directed by ed wood so it is just as much an ed wood film as i woke up early the day that i died True. Just Although not, not but, as fun as I woke up early the day no, I died. It does not There's have, a lot of static camera. Imagine if Billy Zane had done a remake of Orgy of the Dead with the same script. Somebody Boy. needs to do a remake of Orgy of the Dead because that had so much promise. Oh my God. It really did. My so my number five. Oh, yes. Your actual number five. Yes. Okay. Is a 1995 film called Empire Records. Mm. God damn. What? Yeah. What? Empire Records? Empire Records. Whoa. Okay. Nobody liked Empire Records when it came out. I, I like Empire Records. Oh, that's right. Okay. I was almost going to say, wait a minute. That takes place over two days. It doesn't. The final film is one day, but originally cut, it was two days, but it was cut to be just the one. Yeah. And Rightfully so, because it is a dark night of the soul. So in 1995, this is an aggressively 90s film. It's coming out in the center of the 90s. Everybody is dressed so very, very 90s. There's a lot of leather jackets. 
and plaid mini skirts and fuzzy sweaters. Yeah, right? you've got Liv Tyler in there, pre-Lord of the Rings, but post-Aerosmith videos. You've got Renee Zellweger, pre-Jerry Maguire, post-Texas Chainsaw Massacre 4, The Next Generation. So Respect. a lot of young talent in that movie that would go on to do very big things. Yeah, and Robin Tunney in it as well. Really? Who would be pretty much pre-everything, because this is pre-The Craft and pre-Prison Break. Oh, okay. I'm not too familiar with either of those, so I, well, it would pass me by. I think Tobey Maguire is in a deleted scene in that movie. Oh, yeah. Weird. <laughs> I didn't know about his deleted Empire Records appearance. Mm-hmm. But Empire Records also has an aggressively 90s plotline, which <laughs> oh, is God. this little... Leather coat wearing douchebag named Lucas. This fucker. Works at a record store mm-hmm. called Empire Records. And that Empire Records store is in danger of being bought out by a corporate chain called like Tower Records or something. Fucking Lucas. Music Tower Records, I don't remember. Lucas always pissed me off. Yeah, and so Lucas, entitled the last that he is, oh, God, this guy. takes nine grand out of the safe vault, whatever the safe, I the guess. Safe. I'm like, the what word am I safe. looking for? Yeah, yeah the yeah. safe. And he goes to Atlantic City and he gambles it away, hoping to get more money so that he can save the store. It doesn't work because the house always wins. So he comes back and he has to admit, I just stole nine grand from this company and I'm a minimum wage employee and there's nothing I can do about that. So he pretty much sits on the couch all day while people figure out how to clean up his mess. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's a single night where this ragtag group of record store employees try to figure out how to save Empire Records, all while dealing with one of their largest days at the store, Rex Manning Day. Rex Manning Day? Who's a washed-up 80s singer who still has a slight fan base of older women. It's fantastic. Yeah, I have so many conflicted feelings on Empire Records. It is a great movie. I love it. But, yeah, the fact that only the boss seems to be mad at Lucas the entire time all the other employers just like, oh, that Lucas, ha ha ha. I'm like, Lucas just fucked all of you over. How are you not all furious at this guy? Yeah, it's very much a 90s film, yeah. right? There's very little at stake, kind of. There's very little consequences for anyone. It's in a record store. There's just something that is just stuffed with this strange, naive idealism that was happening in the 90s of like, everything's great now. We've been through all the wars we're going to ever be through. (laughs) End of history period, as I've heard it referred to as. Yeah, like any sort of like financial crises or recessions are over. There's just nothing. So that was a big part of the 90s existential crisis for some was this idea that what conflict is left, right? Like, are we just now going to float through the void? No, but I know that there is a Blu-ray or DVD out there that has a lot of the deleted scenes. And the deleted scenes actually sound fascinating because, like I said, the original cut of the movie showed that it was taking place over the course of two days. And also, apparently, the deleted scenes give Rex Manning a redemption arc that he does not have in the finished movie. He doesn't need to be redeemed. I don't know. But I definitely dig that as a great Dark Knight of the Soul pick. That's uh, that's nice. It's just a nostalgia time capsule mm. of the mid-90s. There's just nothing more mid There are some movies, God, from the mid-90s that they did not age well and they're better for it. Yeah. In a strange way. Like, Romeo plus Juliet is such a 90s film. And I love it for it. Hackers aged like fine milk you stored in a freezer since 1995 and it's all the better for it but yeah uh my number four 
It is a 90s film, but definitely not of the same variety. Okay. My number four is Night on Earth, which is a Jim Jarmusch film. And this one is just special to me because this was one of the first times that I can remember watching a film and actively thinking about who directed it. I probably saw this on HBO back in 1993. This is a movie from 91, so a few years after it came out. But it's a film that takes place over the course of one night, and it's a series of five vignettes. And each vignette is the interaction of a cab driver and their passenger. So we start as the sun is setting in L.A., and we have Winona Ryder driving a cab, her Passenger is a talent agent who realizes that a part she needs to cast, this young, you know, smart, streetwise cabbie would actually be perfect for, offers her the part, and Winona Ryder's character says, no, no, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be an actor. I, I want to drive cabs, and I want to be a car mechanic with my boyfriend. That's my dream. And it's a moment where this woman just cannot compute, like, what, you don't want to be famous? Are you even a person? What? I don't get it. And that's her kind of lesson for the evening. The next one takes place in New York. And a passenger played by Carmen Esposito, who most of us now know for villainous roles in The Boys and Mandalorian and a few episodes of Community. It's young him, which is amazing to see, uh, being picked up in New York by a East German immigrant cab driver named Helmut, who he makes fun of his name. And then it turns out Carmen's, his character's name is Yo-Yo. So they both just have weird names and Helmut can't drive a cab to save his life. Yo-Yo uses Helmet to help him deal with some family issues, and they both leave wiser for the experience. Third vignette is in Paris, where a black cab driver is picking up people, and they're making fun of his accent because he's not originally from France, he's from the Ivory Coast of Africa. He picks up a blind woman who is able to figure out where he's from just based on his accent, but does not judge him for it. He is confused by how she can be so perceptive if she has no vision. And she teaches him, like, I see a lot more than you think I do, man. And he doesn't believe her. Lets her out as she walks along the riverscape, just very carefully walking along, not falling in. And he, not really paying attention, crashes into another car at the very end. The fourth vignette is Roberto Rossellini as a cab driver in Rome, picks up a Catholic priest and desperately wanting to confess his sins, tells the priest about all the sexual experiences of his youth, which involved fucking pumpkins fucking yeah. sheep and then fucking his brother's wife and he goes a curious escalation yeah 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 definitely um, just impersonating the sheep's boss as he goes along and eventually he gives the priest a heart attack and leaves him for dead on a bench in rome for people to pick up the next day final vignette is in helsinki where a cab driver picks up some workers who have recently been left off from their jobs. They think their lives are over, and he tells them of family tragedies and that they never had even conceived of, and they realize maybe their lives are not so bad, and they are left. And what's brilliant about this movie that I love is that it's all the same, like, every time a vignette ends, we see this kind of connective tissue of a series of five clocks, and we see the clocks tick back to the starting point, which I guess I think in L.A. was something like, 7 p.m., 8 p.m., something like that, and they always tick back. When the movie starts, the sun is setting in L.A., and when it ends, the sun is rising in Helsinki. Ah, oh, nice. Yes. Seeing what they did there. Yes, it is very cool. So it's kind of a Dark Knight of the Souls type yeah, of movie. across the globe. Yes, and that's what's beautiful to me about it, is just saying, like, we're all here on one night on Earth, all living such crazy, fucked-up lives, and yet all of us have opportunities to learn. All of us have opportunities to change. So how did 
the guy who is fucking pumpkins and his brother's wife change. Exactly. <laughs> I guess it's more that the priest change and that the priest died. Okay. <laughs> Everything's in a state of transition and decay. But 90s it, film. It is really cool because aside from the vignettes that take place in LA and New York, the French, Italian, and Norwegian vignettes... Helsinki's in Norway, right? No, it's in Finland. Damn it all! God damn it! Well, Finland doesn't exist. Finland totally exists. <laughs> no, 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 no. I lived there for quite some time. You were lied to. Finland is not real. I didn't live in Helsinki. I've I lived seen in the Norway. internet conspiracies. Finland's not a thing. <laughs> but the French, Italian, and Finnish, yes, vignettes all feature local actors from each of those countries, which is something you, I guess you would see if more things took place in Finland, but not enough movies take place in Finland. Aside from rare exports, so yeah, yeah. Well, I, some of my favorite films come from Finland, but I guess they're Finnish cinema, like Sauna and The Jade Warrior. Both mm. of those we might have to do at some point because I'm fascinated by them. But mm. yeah, no, Finland's a place. Finland, however, is not generally considered part of Scandinavia proper. So if you put Finland in with Scandinavia, the term for that becomes Fino Scandinavia. Oh, Fino with an E instead of an I. Well, all right. So, that's a that's a whole thing, but my number four mm-hmm. is a 1979 film called oh. The Warriors, <laughs> because The Warriors is an incredibly important Dark Knight of the Soul. Okay, spoiler. That's my number three. Okay, so we'll just talk about the Warriors. <laughs> I then. figured that would be the one we had some crossover on because that's one that you and I have talked a lot about outside of the podcast because we both love the warriors yeah for so many reasons what are your many reasons for loving the warriors well it's a quintessential dark night of the soul film very literally yes it is one night the sun rises at the very end but this is a dark dark movie yeah and it's another walter hill film so we talked about him earlier for streets of fire mm-hmm. this particular plot is that we have an alternative new york city that is just populated by a bunch of different gangs but these gangs are super special these are gangs from a fantasy land or some extended altered enhanced reality of gangs yeah because you've got like the mime gang or whatever and all of the people in a street gang dress and they're affiliated not just colors but whole aesthetic so the mime gang all dresses mimes and travel around like that. The baseball furies all dress like baseball players. With weird kiss makeup. <laughs> and then there's like the ones on roller skates. Like it's just a whole wonderful world. And then the warriors are the gang that we focus on that are all fairly problematically dressed in borrowed indigenous clothing pieces mixed with Western apparel. Like it's, a, it's a whole mash, but it's very it's 70s. A, very much a 70s. <laughs> And all of the gangs have been called to a meeting in the Bronx to try to negotiate peace or, or something. And unfortunately, that peace does not come because the charismatic leader that's trying to unite all of the gangs gets shot and assassinated and the warriors get blamed for this act. And so the warriors are a gang from Coney Island and they must spend the rest of the night trying to make their way back to the safety of Coney Island from the Bronx. So it's such a great Dark Knight of the Soul film because it's just literally this odyssey type of progression from a linear point of geographic location A, which for people who are not super familiar with New York City geography, 
the Bronx is it's very north. It's yeah. one of the further north places you can get and still kind of be within the city proper. And then Coney Island is way at the tip. Right. So they have to just make their way completely down the city. Some of it's going to take place on public transport. Some of it is going to take place on foot. It, uh, yeah. It's intense. And all the gangs are out for them. Those boppers. Get ready now, boppers. We've got a hot tip for you. Yes, the radio DJ played by Lynn Thickpen who the 90s children of us would recognize as Chief from Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. Fuck yeah. You know, in that movie, like, in The Warriors, you just you literally just see her lips, and that's it. But the trek of them getting home through enemy territory, this is based on a Greek legend, is it not? Yeah, so we'll probably do The Warriors at some Most point, likely. because there's we just a get... whole bunch of stuff. So it is very heavily based on a lot of like the Iliad and the Odyssey, and a bit of the Aeneid as well. So mm. these kind of classic traveling home from war yeah. <laughs> to your homeland. Which I believe that the movie was originally based on a book that took a lot from Greek mythology. Yes. If I'm not mistaken. That is also correct. Yeah. I love the Warriors in that it's a timestamp of how just fucked up everyone was starting to think New York was going to be. Because, God, the late 70s, New York was in bad shape, man. This is after the pre- like everyone was saying that the president had told the New York City to drop dead when he wouldn't allow for you know emergency funds to be given to the city. The whole city itself was on the verge of bankruptcy. And, God, things were getting really bad in that town. And this movie comes out and people say, oh, that's the near future is crazy gangs running the city. Mm, Yeah, we can see that. And the cinematography in this film is spectacular. Yes. It has these neon moments. It has these very cool juxtaposed color palette moments that feel like a very contemporary film. Well, timeless and contemporary at the same time. In a strange way. Yeah, God, just from that title card of that, the title image of the movie where we see the title for the Warriors and that Ferris wheel, that Coney Island ride that slowly keeps rotating as it goes along and that amazing synth music is so hypnotic and haunting that just takes you into the film. But really, I'm surprised you haven't asked me something. Well. Can I dig it? I don't want to ask you if you can Well, can you dig it? Of course I can dig it. Can you dig it? Yes. Can you dig it? So my number three. (laughs) (laughs) Since that was my number three, yes, let's go to your number three, which I may or may not be able to dig. Yeah. Since I know it's not the Warriors, so it's up in the air whether or not I can dig it. Well, this is another one we might have in common. I don't know. All right. It is a 2004 film All right. called Collateral. Oh, okay. The Tom Cruise, Jamie Foxx. Michael Mann. Michael, uh, Jada Pinkett Smith was also in that. But yes, the Michael Mann film. I mean, the cinematography in that one is a very fascinating piece because that was a very early days of any digital cinematography, which I know he kind of went, Michael Mann went a little half and half on for some of that. that was partially filmed digitally for the low light scenes and then mostly film when extra light was not a problem. Yeah, it's a really cool vibe in terms of its cinematography and its overall mood. One might classify it as a bit of a Mm neo-noir. And Tom Cruise, this is another role for him where he really is just kind of great. It was, yeah, one of the first times I think he was playing a villain that I can recall. Well, I guess Lestat in some ways. Oh, well... 
but the start is fantastic. The start was the hero of the piece, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah, he's the best. But yes, yeah, so he in this Michael Mann film. So overall, it has a lot of Michael Mann vibes. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of chiaroscuro in a very weird way. I don't even want to say neon chiaroscuro. It's kind of like a blue chiaroscuro. Like he doesn't do with darks and white light. He does a lot of like blue light and well, a lot of yeah. his stuff. Michael Mann loves his like blue. Yeah. But like a Miami blue. And he, he uses a Miami Vice palette because he's Michael Mann. I always think of Collateral and Heat as great examples of the not overblown violence, but brutal violence that is in Michael Mann's films, which is it's very direct, very quick. Most of the time when Mr. Collateral or Tom Cruise's <laughs> character is killing someone, it's not a flashy fight sequence. It's a push them away, shot to the head, two shots to the heart. That's it. It's clinical in its violence. Yeah, so the plot of this as to why Tom Cruise is methodically killing people. Yeah, sure. Tell us. He is a hitman. That is his profession. And he has come to town for one night to kill some people. And theming with some of our earlier mentions, he gets into a cab. Oh! <laughs> yeah, apparently Dark Knights of the Soul, they need some cabs. And Jamie Lee Fox is... Unfortunately for him, the cab driver, and he gets pulled into this dark night of the soul, having to drive hitman Tom Cruise around. And yeah, it's just it's a Michael Mann movie, but everyone is fantastic in their roles. And it is a little bit more subtle and subdued. And it's just effective. It's just a really fun dark night of the soul movie. It's mm -hmm. one, too, that nothing's gonna get any better come the dawn. I don't even fully remember how Collateral ends because it's, it's about the journey, not the destination. Right. I remember how it ends, but I don't want to spoil anything for the listeners who might want to see whether or not Tom Cruise's character dies. Oops. Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> shatters on a car or something? Okay, yeah. He, he is shot, and he is left to die on the L.A. train, and it's referring to an earlier conversation where he mentioned that he had heard of someone who died of a heart attack on the subway and no one touched them for the entire day because a uh, guy in the subway who's not moving. Fuck that, I'm not touching that. Yeah, so we have a dark night of the soul and then the possible sequel for the corpse's dark day of the body. Basically. Still out there to be done. Mm -hmm. What is your number two? My number two is a 1985 Martin Scorsese piece called After Hours. Oh, I forgot about After Hours. Yes. What is After Hours about? Good gods. Uh, see, this is the trick with describing the plot to After Hours. There is so much fucking plot in After Hours. It's kind of crazy. The general gist of the film is that a data entry programmer, so a guy with the most mundane fucking job you can imagine, gets embroiled in a night of adventures in Manhattan that involves bartenders, involves obscure artists, that involves hit people, that involves mobsters, that involves thieves, one after the other, and he's just trying to get home. But he loses all the cash he has for a cab, it's New York in 1985, so you're not exactly calling an Uber from your phone, if you don't have cash, you're kind of fucked. And he is just constantly trying to get home. One thing after another is throwing that plan out of whack. 
The movie is so complicated in its plot, there's actually a point about 75 minutes in where he just explains his night to someone else to try to get them to believe, no, seriously, all this crazy shit has been happening to me. And at the very end of the movie, when he thinks he's getting back home, he's in a vehicle that drops him off and he's right back at the job site that he was at at the beginning of the movie <laughs> in one bizarre cycle and the day starts anew. Yeah. Sisyphusian soul trap. Absolutely. <laughs> Dark Knight of the Sisyphusian soul. I watched this movie in research for one of our episodes and you're not gonna believe the movie that I watched this in research for. Mm. I watched this in research for Beyond the Black Rainbow. Okay, why? You would think that's strange, because like I just said, there's so much goddamn plot in After Hours. Why would I watch that for Beyond the Black Rainbow, a movie which has almost no plot whatsoever? It's because in interviews, Panos Kosmatos, the writer and director of Beyond the Black Rainbow, cited After Hours as the movie that made him realize, wow, you can really do anything with cinema. Cinema is such a flexible and fluent art form, you really can just do all sorts of crazy shit with it that normally you never would. And that's what After Hours taught him. And by God, he really showed us that he believes in that with Beyond the Black Rainbow, which while it doesn't have as complex a plot as After Hours or any plot whatsoever, it is a movie that reminds you cinema can be whatever the fuck the writer and director wants it to be. Yeah, such a flexible medium. Exactly. What is your number two? My number two also kind of in some ways ends up back where it started. All right. It's a film from 1999 called Go. Oh, yes. So. Go. <laughs> oh, my God. I loved that movie. Yeah. So Go is directed by Doug Lyman, who is probably more well known for Swingers, which he did three years prior in 1996. And also the first Jason Bourne movie. That too. Yeah. Yes. But Swingers and Go actually have a lot in common in terms of their style. They both used the same editor. They, he pretty much brought his same team for the most part from Swingers mm. on to Go. Steven Mirone, M-I-R-R-I-O-N-E. He's like his editor that gets a lot of work <laughs> to do <laughs> on both Swingers and Go. But in Go in particular, this is another film we will talk about at some point. Oh, definitely. Because, yeah, yeah it, it is very interesting what it's doing with editing. But we have three main stories. I think there's three, not four, that are all yeah, three. intertwined together. And so it is... I guess kind of like the Jim Jarmusch movie, One Single Night, but different stories of what different people are mm -hmm. up to. But instead of across the globe, all of these people interact or intersect with each other in some capacity. And it takes place on Christmas. <laughs> so Does it is. It? Yeah. I, oh, I didn't remember that. It's a Christmas movie. Huh. Yeah, two of. So Katie Holmes is in it. And. Yeah, she is. Her, her and her roommate end up in this accidental drug sale mix-up because they really want to make the rent and so her roommate gets drugs from this one drug dealer and then tries to sell tic tacs at a rave and like it's it's really oddly complicated to explain because it's really just people in their 20s doing asinine stuff <laughs> 
in Los Angeles, and oh, Hoosiers yeah. takes place in Los Angeles. So, so does Collateral. So does because what did I also say? Cellular. Oh, that's another thing. Cellular was 2004 in LA. Mm-hmm. Collateral is 2004 in LA. So I like to Whoa. think that while Chris Evans is having his dark day of the soul, like later <laughs> that night, Tom Cruise comes in and he starts hitmanning people, and it's just this like whole problem. I mean, when you consider the number of films that take place over one day or what have you in LA, you could probably create some super cut of movies that take place on one single particular calendar date very easily. That would be a feature length film. Ooh, actually it'd be fun to do some sort of super cut of like one particular road, like all of the things that have happened on Rodeo Drive God damn. <laughs> in cinema just oh, over time. That's some Lord of the Rings extended or like edition Mulholland shits, Drive. man. So, yeah, Go is just a bunch of people who are still working their stuff out in their (laughs) 20s. They're going to raves. They're trying to sell drugs. There's two cops that are trying to go undercover and get some kind of drug bust. There are a group of guys that want to go to Vegas for the weekend. A lot of this is intersected because a group of them all work at the same grocery store to start and are trying to swap shifts and things so they can do what they need to do. And... Just all of this crazy shit happens to all of these characters throughout the night. And come the dawn, a lot of them have been physically changed in one way. One chick has gotten hit by a car and now can't really quite walk completely correctly. Like, she has some sort of back injury, but she manages to make it to breakfast. Because there's this one diner that three of the characters all tend to meet up at if they get lost in their night out. And mm-hmm. so Katie Holmes makes it there first. And then her brother, or I guess the the chick who's gotten released from the hospital shows up. And then they have to go look for her brother who's passed out somewhere behind a garbage bin. So it's like, it's just this kind of bleak dawn. And you're thinking like, holy shit, like what a night, right? But it kind of culminates in one of them like, or they're scouring the parking lot looking for the keys. So it's like, where did I leave my keys or lose my keys and all of this from the rave? And they find the keys in the parking lot. One tosses it to the other and they get in the car and go. And they're like, so what are we doing for New Year's? Right. And it is this definitive statement of we have learned nothing. Like this is just what people do in their 20s. And the director's commentary on Go is really, really great. It's very informative, both Mm. on the technicalities and on the meaning behind a lot of stuff. And Doug Lyman did talk specifically about how he did make this intentionally as a very 20-something ethos film, that Mm -hmm. this is what he and a lot of people in their 20s do, is they go out, they party, they get wasted, they get totally drunk, they don't really learn a lot of things. Like, (laughs) it's more, it it takes more than one night, and it takes an aging process, and they did not age in this one night, they just have had some physical maladies befall them up throughout the course of the night. But yeah, whatever. They shake it off. You know, they're resilient. They're, they're like 21. They're, they're fine. They can go back into the rave again on New Year's. So there's something about that that's also just very 90s in its ethos. Because like Empire Records, we have these characters, a lot of them which are not very empathetic or likable. <laughs> some of them are more no. likable than they are in Empire Records because that's a real low bar. But... I think what it is that makes it so interesting to watch is the technical components of the Mm -hmm. film, but then also just this 90s brink of the millennium feel to the film of, like, bucket, right? Like, it has this very, like, Y2K feeling of, like, we've gone through the 90s where we've seen no war or recession or whatever, which is not entirely true, but, you know, that was, like, the general mindset. Mm -hmm. And we're on the brink of possibly 
the Y2K collapse. So like rave, you know, party like it's 1999. It is an ultimate party like it's 1999 movie. Mm-hmm. And like you're still have the liver of like a 19 year old. Yeah. Those were the days. Yeah. Yeah. So what is your number one? My number one. I'm wondering if it's going to be the same. Um, I really doubt. I'll be shocked if it is. Okay. Because this is a film that not only have we never talked about in the podcast, I don't think that you and I have ever discussed on our own in the 10 years we've known each other. This is a black and white film from 1966 that was made right after the end of the production code when Jack Valenti created the MPAA ratings board. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Oh, Fun. Okay. Now, if you know this film, you you can see why I picked it. This is the darkest night of the darkest souls, I think, that's ever been put to film. For those of you who don't know this, this is based on a 1962 Edward Albee play called, of the same name, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And it concerns a married couple, played by Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, while made while they themselves were married. I can't imagine what this movie did to their marriage, but holy shit. Richard Burton is a history professor. Elizabeth Taylor is his wife and the daughter of the president of the college. This is a marriage that should not exist. It should not be because these two hate each other with an utter passion that is indescribable in how poisonous it is. It is a marriage that should have ended decades ago or just never happened to begin with. They hate each other. And guess what? They're having company over for the evening. (laughs) This evening, we're getting Nick and Honey over. Nick is a new professor of math at the university that George works at. I forgot Richard Burton's name, briefly there. Martha is Elizabeth Burton's character. And Nick and his wife, Honey, and they're meeting them together. And they're just going to have a nice little time. But by God, it does not go very well. A strange plot device that keeps coming up that's very unexplained for a long time is that Martha wants to talk about her and George's son. And George does not want to talk about their son. He keeps saying, don't talk about our son, Martha. Don't tell them about our son. And guess what? She brings up their son. And when she does this, this triggers something in George that is very bad. As the night progresses, Martha is flirting with Nick nonstop. Nick jokes to George that he wants to sleep his way to the top. He might start with his wife. He only married his current wife for her money. This Nick guy, the young guy, married Honey for her money. It's just all so bad. And as it builds and builds, the night is just getting nastier as it goes along. And after a little while, George says, No, Martha, I know what I will tell Martha. I received a telegram. Our son is dead. And you think, wait, what the fuck are you talking about? Martha hears this. What? No! No, it can't be true! Show me the telegram! I ate the telegram. Martha flips the fuck out. No! You can't do it! You can't kill him! No! She has an emotional break, and it's revealed. They don't have a son. They could never have children. George is sterile. That children was not a possibility. The son was an imaginary concept they made up to fill the void of being a childless married couple who hate each other. And so George, having reached his breaking point, decides, we are no longer living this illusion. It's just you and me now, and the hatred we have between us. That's it. 
Their transformation is not a bright one. <laughs> it is a dark night of a dark soul to a dark morning and a darker soul. And Nick and Honey, having been exposed to this, are probably transformed for the worst. Darkest night of the darkest soul. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? My number one. It's such a weird way to kill off your fake imaginary son, like, via telegram. Yeah, that's why he said he, he concocts the plan about halfway through after he's just had it with Martha being a complete asshole to him for the entire evening. And just, he works out the plan in front of Sandy. Sandy is young and drunk off her ass on Brandy and just does not understand what is going on. He, while George is trying to work it out, like, yes, Martha, I'll, that's what I'll tell Martha. We had a telegram to, to announce a tragic traffic accident. Our son is dead. And Sandy's just like, oh, no. Oh, what? Your, your son? It's delightful to watch. It is. God, there's so much great things going on there. The cinematography is just this beautiful black and white cinematography. It's great to watch it with the context of this being one of the very first movies that a wide audience was seeing that would have people saying, like, God damn it, or screw you, or up yours, asshole. Like, foul language that no one had seen in film prior to this was suddenly coming to the screens across America, and we're better for it, really. <laughs> well, my number one is a film that I think you just maybe forgot okay. about. <laughs> it's a movie from 2017 called Good Time. <laughs> the Sad Free Brothers movie? Yeah. Oh, boy, yeah. That's, um, yeah, I, I have seen that movie. I guess that's the older picks, the older classic vintage kicks were, yeah. were more my thing, but I do not disagree that is a dark night of the soul, to be sure. This is one of my favorite movies. Just <laughs> not even of Dark Night of the Soul. This is just a spectacular movie. Written and directed by the Safdie brothers, Josh and Benny. It stars Robert Pattinson in the role that really got a lot of people to suddenly notice Oh, shit. Hey, this guy can, he can do things outside of being a sparkly vampire. Yeah, he's got some talent. He's got some range. He's channeling some really early old school Robert De Niro vibes. This is a little bit before The Lighthouse had come out. So mm -hmm. this yep. was really this role. He bleached his hair out for it. And I don't, once again, you can totally tell that he has an acting or a talent in the Twilight films. But we'll get to those some other day. <laughs> But this is a film that he and his brother start out the film trying to rob a bank and shit goes wrong pretty quickly. His brother, who has some sort of cognitive disability, ends up the one that is in custody and put into general population holding while Connie is Robert Pattinson's name in this, has to find a way to try to scrounge together the money to make his brother's bail to get him out. And what ensues is just his epic night odyssey trying to get that money. And it is done to an exhilarating score that is very uh, synth and... Got everything. Yeah, pulsating. It is done to spectacular cinematography that is just the purest kind of neon noir so gorgeous. There's a lot of kinetic camera movement, but it does not induce motion sickness. 
there is a lot of high tension and high anxiety to the point that I'm not actually going to say how this movie ends because part of it Mm. is just that feeling of adrenaline that they seem to be able to maintain through an expert type of synthesis of music, editing, pacing, acting, camera work. It's all coming together to just make it one of the most high-octane films I have ever seen. And I generally... I generally like to know where a film is going. I'm the kind of person that generally looks up the plot of a movie all the way through before I go into watching it because I pay attention to so many other things that are happening in a movie that I don't have time to pay attention to the plot as it's unfolding in front of me. So I need to know that going in because I'm way more interested in the technicalities of filmmaking. But yeah, even I was like, okay, I can handle the suspense of this just because it is so exquisite. It's a very masochistic experience in that regard if you have that relationship with suspense and anxiety of not knowing what's coming next. But yeah, everything about it is just spectacular, and I would recommend it. I think everyone should go watch Good Time. I think everyone should go watch all of these films. That's why we're doing this top five, but yeah, it's my number one for a reason. The Sadfi Brothers, I, Sadfi, am I saying that right? Uh, there is a D in it. It's S-A-F-D-I-E. Oh, Safdi Brothers, my bad. Safdi, whatever, those brothers who made Good Times, they've also made Uncut Gems. But yeah, they have not let me down yet with their film work, and I love everything they do, so yeah, definitely. Now, we've gone through all of our movies, all of our honorable mentions, all five of our movies that we enjoy. Like we said at the top, we have a listener-submitted Darkest Night of the Soul movie that they said is very obvious. So, drumroll, what is that movie? Oh, this is actually brought up in your honorable mentions. Oh, and it is Groundhog's Day. Okay! Which well, does not take place at night, as we mentioned. Yep, yeah, there's, there's some parts of the day that involve the night, but it's not a primarily nighttime movie. And it is definitely a transformative movie. I mean, there are many people who have cited that as a beautiful re- reawakening of the soul for that character that Bill Murray plays in that. So it definitely hit fits into that transformative element that we've been discussing. Yeah, and it's definitely spawned a lot of TV episode homages and other movie homages. To have True. The, I love the supernatural television show Groundhog's Day episode. Mm-hmm. Super fun. Isn't there an episode... Wait, wait, say that again? The television series Supernatural oh, had a Groundhog's Day that episode. That was, was just about to say that, yeah. Where, which one is it that this happened the same day over and over again? Uh, Sam, the younger brother, just keeps having to wake up and explain to his brother that they're caught in some sort of time loop over and over again. And he watches Dean die in a horrific way every single day in a different way. And it becomes quite comical. I remember that episode just because you once showed that to me for the sake of a single line of it. Where the younger brother gets mad at Dean and says like, no, something's going on here. And Dean just, he like looks and says, oh, you know, I start to shiver a little bit when you yell at me. Sammy, you know I get all tingly when you take control of that. That's it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a great line. Yeah, I'm, I'm into the wincest. It's fine. Man, Don't worry about it. Only there were like some sort of place you could go online and, you know, talk about that sort of thing or write out, you know, your own imaginary scenarios that those brothers might be in and put those out online to a website. 
other people might read. It's not what this episode is about, but yes, <laughs> fanfic is a glorious thing. You didn't know that we were being sponsored by AO3? You, I didn't tell you about that new sponsorship deal. AO3 doesn't need to sponsor anyone. It is eternal. But but this is this is not what this We're kind of off topic here, episode but that's, is about. that's just where our dark souls go to, uh, really. But there you have it, folks. Our top five dark Night of the Souls. So really, there's ten movies, our own personal top fives. Five by five. Five by five. And I think having said all that, we can say that we are now... Well, actually, one second before you go there. Or can say a thing. Uh, so yeah, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Cinema of Cruelty and Reddit Cinema of Cruelty, where we would love to hear what you think should have been on the list of The Dark Night of the Souls. I especially want to hear it because... This is one of my favorite subgenres. I want to know all the Dark Knight of the Soul movies. So let's hear yours. Which ones did we miss? Which ones should we have gotten into a little bit more? We'd love to know. Yeah, that's what I just said. But yes. Yeah. Well, you know what? You didn't say it enough. Yeah. Can't stress it enough. Come talk to us. Yes. So we don't have to talk to each other. On Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, not Facebook. I refuse. Fine. <laughs> Weird Hill to die on, but fine. Now you may outro us. Uh, may I say you that may. having said all that, we are now out in five, four, three, two, one. It's a dark night of my soul, and temptation's taking hold. But through the pain and the suffering, through the heartache and trembling, As long as you don't go scratching at me or humping my leg, we're five by five, you know?